right into it this morning. We have quite a few verses to cover. If I told you how many, you'd probably run screaming, so I'm not going to do that. Um, <clears throat> we're just going to make a marathon run of it, uh, as we do it the best that we can. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John this morning, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 7, so if you would turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there is one on the in the pews. You can grab one of those uh, and turn to John chapter 7. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing primarily with the Bread of Life discourse, which took place at Passover. Chapter 7 starts with a, another festival that's called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And that occurred about six months later. So the difference between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 is about six months, and he accounts for this time period by saying, after this. So after this, six months later, here's what happened. Um, When we think about the, the gospel of John... There is a theme that starts to develop, and you'll see it all the way through to the end of the Gospel of John. It concerns the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? You'll notice that much of the dialogue in this particular chapter centers around that same idea. People trying to wrap their minds around who this man is. Because to the world, he looks like any other guy. He grew up in Nazareth. He has parents that people know. Dad was a carpenter. They know his mom and his brothers and his sisters. Some of them have have been around him when he was growing up. So they've seen him. They've seen him in the synagogue. He's just a normal Jewish man, yet he is calming storms and feeding 5,000 with five loaves and and two fish and giving sight to the blind and he's teaching with an authority that is unmatched uh, by anybody else and he's declaring himself to be one with God. So the people have questions and and rightfully so. I mean, if someone came to me and said, hey, you know little Billy from down the street? He's out at the city lake walking across water. I'll probably go check that out. Right? I'm going to have questions about that. All right, what is he doing? How, How is he making this happen? How does Jesus speak with such authority? How can he do these miraculous signs? Who is this man? And that's, that's really a, a valid question. It is applicable to every person, every generation, every age. Everyone who ever has, is, or ever will live on this earth should ask that very question. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And John seeks to answer that question in his gospel multiple times. And here's kind of what he has presented thus far and what we can kind of gather through the rest of it. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. Everything that he does, everything that he did, he he did with intention, fulfilling a specific purpose, the purpose that God sent him. His mission was to seek and to save the lost. And in fulfilling that mission, he would ultimately bring glory to God the Father by being obedient and accomplishing his purpose for which he was called. So Jesus is the sinless, perfect, sacrificial lamb of God who would be offered up in the place of sinners to take away their sins and to reconcile them to God. So everything that that Jesus does, it has purpose, it has meaning. It's something that, that God is leading. He's always been about the Father's business. Nothing distracts him from that mission. Not even death will distract him from that mission. They thought that they had him. 
And then three days later, he rises again and says, nice try. But I'm back. He's always about his father's business. And through the eyes of faith, we can look at that and say, you know, Jesus' sacrifice makes sense. I am a sinner. And I am in need of a savior. Through the eyes of faith, it makes sense. But to the unbelieving world, it's foolishness. If you remember what Paul said, the the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. People often see Jesus from two very different perspectives. One, from the perspective of faith. We can can see Christ and we can say, he came to earth, he turned the world upside down, he frustrated the powers that be, and and in the most unconventional and incredible way, he brought salvation to those who were perishing and who were dying. And he did so by dying on the cross for their sins as a substitute and a sacrifice. But... But from the perspective of unbelief, everything that Jesus did made no sense. He chose to lay low when he could have been famous. He chose to die when he could have been crowned king. He ate with sinners and tax collectors when he could have been seated at the table with the rich and the powerful. Everything he did didn't make sense. He chose self-denial and sacrifice over self-service and advancement. And you see, through the lens of unbelief, we, we cannot rightly see the sacrifice of Christ. We cannot understand what he did. It, it was unbelief that hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was unbelief that caused Jesus to be rejected in his own town, in Nazareth. It was unbelief that, that denied the Israelites entry into the promised land. It was unbelief that murdered Jesus. And ultimately, it's unbelief that keeps the lost sinner from coming to Christ. And as our culture grows increasingly secular day by day, unbelief is on the rise. And and I think we need to remember that unbelief, when we consider the nature of it, doesn't just affect those outside the church. It also affects those inside the church, particularly as people start to to blur the lines between the sacred and the secular. And I'll remind you that those who hated Jesus and eventually killed Jesus were very religious people. So belief and unbelief are not determined by whether or not you go to church or whether you say you have faith or, or some kind of other external factor. Really, belief and unbelief are determined by the status of your heart. First and foremost, has God changed your heart? Because we say, people that don't know Christ, we say they're an unbeliever. But did you know that people that do know Christ can act in unbelieving ways? Has God changed your heart? Sin has so corrupted the human heart that we have no capacity to know God or to love God. Our only hope is, is a supernatural transformation of the heart, something that we call being born again. Have you placed your faith and trust in, in Jesus? Have you allowed God to change your heart? See, that's the first factor in understanding. Am I, do, I, do I have belief? Or am I still an unbeliever? But, but the second factor is, are you guarding your heart, Christian? Are you guarding your heart from unbelief? 
You see, we still have the sinful flesh and the freedom to choose to give ourselves over to that sin. So we have the ability to practice the sin of unbelief. Belief in God is characterized by heart change that allows us to love God and to serve God and ultimately leads us to self-sacrifice and leads us to surrender and leads us to holy living. But it seems nowadays... Self-sacrifice and surrender and holy living aren't necessarily the parts of Christianity that people actually like. So if you want Christianity, but you also want to, to kind of bring people in, you have to kind of ignore this whole sin problem. And you know what that is? That's unbelief. Unbelief is not concerned with honoring or obeying God. Rather, it's focused on self-preservation, self-satisfaction, self-advancement, self-acceptance, self-glorification. So when we start in chapter 7 this morning, we are looking at several groups of people who are focused so inwardly that they can't see what is outside of them. They can't see what is true and what is right. Because of their unbelief. But I will remind you, church, that unbelief is a sin that all of us, lost and saved, struggle with. And so we have to recognize the folly of unbelief, the foolishness of it. And that's the title of the message today, The Folly of Unbelief. We're in John chapter 7. Uh, we're going to consider three characteristics of unbelief. It provokes hostility promotes falsehood, it produces uncertainty. Let's look first at unbelief provoking hostility. Verse 1 says, uh, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews are seeking to kill him. Why? Because of their unbelief. Unbelief brings hostility. And one of the, the most prominent sources of hostility came from the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. So when John says the Jews, he's talking specifically about the Jewish religious leaders here. In an earlier chapter, he actually identifies two reasons why they were seeking to kill Jesus. One, because he healed a person on the Sabbath day. And, but secondly, and more importantly, he calls himself God and says that God is his own father, making himself equal with God. And that is the real reason that they, they thought Jesus was worthy of death, blasphemy. It gave them an excuse. So, yes, he healed a man on the Sabbath, which really irritated them. But then he turned around and pointed out that they water their animals on the Sabbath. And it seems kind of silly that they would have more care for their animals than they would for another human being that Jesus healed. That kind of ticked them off as well. So they were very angry with Jesus. They were furious, though, that he claimed to be one with God. Because then that would mean that he has authority. And that the rebuke that he gave them would be one that was real and true. They had a problem with that. So Jewish leaders created so much hostility that, that people around them who were not even associated with Jesus at all were afraid to talk about it. If you jump forward and look at verses 11 and 13, or 11 through 13, there's these, 
this, this group that's talking about Jesus a little bit, and they're saying, okay, uh, is he, some say he's a good man, others say that maybe he's leading people astray. Uh, and it says there, were mu- there was much muttering about him among the people, yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. Because of their hostility, even people not associated with Jesus, maybe even didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah, they're not even going to talk about it. Our culture grows increasingly intolerant of Christianity, and it becomes increasingly marginalized, and I believe that that will continue to be so. Basically, because the message of Christianity is exclusive and it's dogmatic, and you can't get around that. There is only one God. There is only one way to heaven. Jesus is the only way, and any worldview, and any religion, and any celebrity opinion, and any scholar, and any professor who says otherwise, or that denies Jesus is God, or that denies Jesus is the only way, or denies Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, any of those messages or thoughts or people, their message is wrong. It's a lie. That's the message of Christianity, to say that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to heaven. That's going to marginalize us. But that's also the message that was so preposterous that Jesus just couldn't live. They had to kill him. So he chose to remain in Galilee to avoid Judea for this very reason, because they're seeking to kill him. And it wasn't because Jesus was afraid to die, because he's going to do that. It's just that it wasn't time yet. Later on, Jesus is going to say that time has not yet fully come. It's not time for me to go. So he, he remained behind as his brothers are saying, hey, let's go, to this, let's go to this feast. Look at what his brothers do. His brothers try to tempt him to do something that it's not time to do yet. Now, it says in verse 2, the, Jew, the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no, for, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. I find disbelief, or at least the disbelief of his brothers, and their complete lack of understanding who Jesus is, really fascinating. And maybe it's just a testimony to the wickedness of the human heart. But if you think about the fact that here's people that grew up with Jesus. They saw him grow up. They have a mom and dad who, by the way, were miraculously visited by angels. And a mom who birthed a child but was a virgin. And I'm sure they've heard that story before. That's something that they talk about as a family. I'm thinking that they probably know the story. Not only that... Jesus is now performing miracles that they have seen. And they're amazed by what Jesus is doing, and it says they still didn't believe in him. They're so hard-hearted that they just couldn't believe that he was who he said he was. Now, later on, they will, but up to this point, they have not. They do believe, however, that he can perform miracles and that he'd make a rather fantastic scene at the Feast of Booths that he could impress a large crowd of people 
and draw more disciples to himself and, and maybe even bring some of those disciples back who walked away when Jesus started preaching the truth. We talked about that last week. Um, maybe he could bring some of those d- disciples back. So their argument is, is simple. If you go to this feast, there's going to be a whole lot of people there, and, and uh, you, you'll be able to gather more disciples, like more people are going to follow you, and you're going to show yourself to the world because all those people there... When they leave, they're going to tell everybody about you. So from the perspective of worldly wisdom, this is not actually a bad idea. It's a marketing strategy that could work. His brothers understood that that was a celebration that brought a lot of people. He would be glorified, he'd be lifted up, uh, he'd make a name for himself. Yet what they don't understand is that their advice is, is hostile to the plan and purpose of God. They're advising Jesus to disobey God and ultimately just give up the salvific work of the cross and glorify himself now instead of being glorified later. Kind of like the same temptation Satan gave to Jesus when he said, you know, bow down and worship me. All this could be yours. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. Just do it now. Jesus' mission was not to perform miracles in order to draw large crowds and make a name for himself. His mission was to seek and save the lost and to bring glory to God. Two things he can't do by following the wisdom of the world. Consider that, church, when the world tells us that the truth of the word of God and the gospel and prayer and love for one another and worship are just not enough anymore. Well, if you, want to be, if you want to be a church that's relevant, then, then you need to buy into the world's marketing strategies and, and you need to appeal to worldly preferences and you need to stop preaching about sin and you really need to make a name for yourself. In, in uh, 2020, Carl Truman wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In it, he talks about the rise of the psychological self and the liquefaction of all of the traditional institutions like family and church and, um, and, and nation. And he says of the church, freedom of religion, while a great social virtue has over time meant that congregations and denominations are effectively competing in a free market for, congre- for congregants, something that presses churches toward pandering to customer or consumer tastes and are focusing on marginal differences to leverage their market share. This is just not what I think Jesus had in mind for the church. But he's not wrong. They pray and study the word and fellowship together and preach the truth and care for for the needy. Yes, those the church should do. He says as much. Build a customer base for your church business. Not so much. The fact of the matter is that there are worldly strategies to build bigger and better churches, and I promise you they work. They work. People have been trained in this country to, from birth to be consumer-driven. So the, 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 this perspective of worldliness, it's, it's a business model that makes sense. And, and However, we have to... Think about the fact that worldly methods get worldly results. 
So Jesus could have gone with his brothers and he could have performed these particular miracles and and he may even have become more popular than he already was. But from what we already know from last week's message that works and wonders draw a whole crowd of people, but as soon as Jesus opens his mouth and begins to speak truth, that crowd shrinks. Why? Because they're there for the party. They're not there for the truth. They're not there to hear the message. They're there to see the works and wonders. In the words of Jack Nicholson, they can't handle the truth. Even if Jesus had gone with his brothers, even if he did what he said, what they said, it probably wouldn't have turned out like they envisioned it. You see, the irony is... A little over six months later, Jesus is going to do exactly this. He's going to ride into Jerusalem with fanfare. And he is going to, to be lifted up and, and he is, is going to show himself to the world. And they're going to crucify him for it. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But he said, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Unbelief brings hostility. Jesus says, the world hates me. Unbelief is hostility toward the testimony of truth. So Jesus says the world hates him. Why? Because He speaks the truth. I testify about it that its works are evil. I tell them, hey, you're doing wrong. You're doing evil. And they don't like to hear it. People, including Christians, don't want to be confronted with sin most often. Many want Jesus for the benefits that he can offer. But they don't want to repent. They don't want to live holy lives. So a church that holds people accountable to the truth may not be the most popular. But here's the other side of it. We can gauge how well we represent Jesus in the world by how much the world loves us. The world finds no basis for hate for those who support it and who accept it and embrace it and who live worldly lives. So his brothers can go. That's fine, but not Jesus. Because he'll speak the truth, and that'll be it. That's a condemning statement for his brothers, by the way. You can go into the world because the world finds you insignificant. You can go, and it won't make a difference. Why? Because you're of the world. You belong to the world. There is not a separate mission for you. However, for Jesus, he belongs to God. He belongs to the kingdom of God. That'll be noticed. The world doesn't accept Jesus, regardless of how true his words are or how amazing his miracles are. They can't. Not without a heart change. And you see, that's how sick and how depraved the human heart is. The world hates Jesus simply because he speaks the truth. John, in chapter 3, he says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, but the people love darkness 
They don't love the light. They'd rather stay in the darkness because their works are evil. Unbelief is opposed to Jesus and opposed to the will of God. Unbelief also promotes falsehood. After his brothers left, Jesus went to Jerusalem privately. He didn't make a big spectacle about it. He tells them, I'm not going. In other words, I'm not going with you. But he goes. But he goes quietly. He slips into the temple and begins teaching. And it's here that Jesus confronts the denial of the religious leaders. And I want you to notice how many times the the Jews are willing to compromise truth in in order to hold on to unbelief. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They they claim to be teachers, but they ignore sound teaching. Isn't that interesting? Because they're looking at Jesus and saying, I don't know about his teaching, but this man can teach. How is that possible? To the Pharisee, it was unimaginable that anybody could teach the word without having been well-educated. Jesus taught so well that they were forced to admit that he knew what he was talking about. They were forced to admit that he was, he was really good at expounding on the word of God. He was a master communicator with far greater ability than any of them. And what is mind-boggling is their ability to admit his mastery of teaching the word of God and their unwillingness to listen to the word that he's teaching. Unbelief causes us to ignore the truth. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So they claim to speak for God, or they claim to speak God's word, but they can't identify the teaching of God. Jesus answers their question by telling them, my teaching doesn't come from me. I didn't study it. I didn't go to school. I didn't train myself. Um, It was a message that I brought with me. It is from God the Father. It's a message that originates with God. Jesus understood the message of God on a very personal level. And so he was able to expound on that message. And according to Jesus, the the, the key to recognizing God's truth is not taught in schools or seminaries. It's found in the transformed heart, one that is willing to do the will of God. F.F. Bruce says, if there be a readiness to do the will of God, the capacity for discerning God's message will follow. In other words, this gives us some insight and understanding into why the Jews hear Jesus but don't believe him. Their heart's desire is not to do the will of God. They're motivated by, they're not motivated by a love for God. They can't discern God's message or the true message, and they can't discern God's true messenger, or they simply refuse to to believe him or to submit to it because of their unbelief. It keeps them from accepting the truth, the truth that is right before their eyes. The one who speaks on his own authority, Jesus says, seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, or to send him, is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So the Jews claim to glorify God by obeying their law, but refuse to put God's glory first in all things. So we're glorifying God, we're obeying the law. But they could care less about the glory of God and compassion and love and mercy. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It, it should be our desire as believers to bring glory to God. 
God says, everyone I call by my name, whom I've created for my glory. We're created for the glory of God. God's glory should be reflected in our lives and in our worship. And Jesus says such a person is true and without falsehood, whose heart is glorifying God. The Jewish leaders couldn't believe Jesus because their purpose in doing so and what they were doing wasn't to bring glory to God at all. It was to glorify themselves. Jesus confronts them. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So they claim to be obedient to the law, yet they plan to break the law by killing Jesus. So Jesus confronts him with that plan. And they say, you're out of your mind. Who is seeking to kill you? But clearly, this is common knowledge that, I mean, people walking around on the street were like, hey, there's Jesus. This is a guy they were trying to kill. People walking around on the street are saying, they're seeking this man. How is it that he's just up here preaching at the temple? Um, why aren't they grabbing him? They already know they're trying to kill him, and yet they try to deny it. Clearly, unbelief blinds us to the truth. The Jews were unwilling to allow Jesus to rebuke them. So Jesus used the law of Moses. He said, well, you know, here's the law, and yet you're going to... Um, disobey that too and that's true they wouldn't let the law of moses at that point rebuke them either the very law they claim to be obedient to instead they justify their actions by breaking the law and and they do so by accusing jesus of blasphemy that way they can commit murder under the guise of service to god how many christians commit sin under the guise of doing good or doing God's work. You see, so often people judge by appearances. People judge by what's on the outside and what people do. But really what matters is what is on the inside because it doesn't matter what you do. God sees the heart. Jesus confronts them with the same message. Don't judge by appearances, he says in, in verse 24, but judge with right judgment. They claim to be loyal to the law, but will bend it when it suits their purposes. So he's already rebuked them about this. He's already said, hey, you water your animals, and you're mad at me for healing a guy. Now he uses the same argument. He says the law of Moses says that a child must be circumcised on the eighth day. What if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath? Well, if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, what are they going to do? They're going to circumcise the child because that law supersedes the Sabbath law. In other words, Jesus is saying, if something like circumcision is a law that supersedes the Sabbath law, why isn't something like healing an entire man's body? It makes no sense. So what he is looking at is, is trying to help them, them to understand that they're denying the will of God and the purpose of God and the compassion of God in order to continue to pursue their own interests in their law. If God would allow them to circumcise a child on the Sabbath, surely he would allow them to have compassion on a grown man, to have his whole body healed. We might think, how terrible. How can, how can they do that? 
Well, I've been in ministry for 20 years and I can tell you how many, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people in church openly judging others for what they wear, for what they say, for where they sit. And I can't tell you how many complaints I hear on a Sunday morning. And, and, and when you think about the, the, the idea that we are here to worship God and to study God's word and to glorify God, and you read the Old Testament and you understand that the people of God have always been fickle, and you say, I don't understand how these people can always be like that and, and, and go back and forth all the time, and let, yet we ourselves will come into a house of worship where we are to study the God, God's word and, and rejoice in what God is doing and rejoice together in worship and yet we will sit here and and judge and be angry and think about all of the things that aren't right because of our own preferences we are a fickle people when god is working and moving and changing hearts and lives how can we judge others and sit and stew over worldly things and and tear down people and then walk out of those doors feeling justified i tell you how we can do it unbelief They worship a merciful God all the while not being merciful themselves, and it makes no sense. And that's the kind of improper judgment Jesus speaks against. They care only about what's on the outside. They care only about what we look like. Well, I can't go here if so-and-so is there because they might see me. They care only about what's on the outside. Jesus cares about what's on the inside. He says, don't judge by appearances, judge by right judgment. Think about what's right. We need to understand God's word, God's purpose, God's will, God's heart. We need to pray and seek the leadership of God's spirit so that we can make right judgments about all matters in life. They thought themselves perfect because they obeyed the law. And yet they desperately needed Jesus and they just couldn't see it. Their unbelief caused them to embrace all sorts of false notions and miss what was most important right in front of them, God's own son. Unbelief causes us to embrace falsehood, but it also produces uncertainty. It makes people uncertain. In verse 25, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? In other words, all the people at this festival, they're all talking about Jesus. They all know what's going on. And there's a general murmuring in which they're saying, all right, is, this, is this the Christ? Is this not? Is this the Messiah? And their first question is the right one. Could this be the Messiah? This is the question that John is trying to to answer in his gospel. It's the question that the crowd is asking. This is the man the authorities want to kill. Here he is speaking in the temple, and he's doing so with authority, and they aren't doing anything about it. And while they ponder the political failure of the religious leaders not to do what they say they're going to do, they really, again, miss the whole purpose. They miss Jesus' teaching. They don't hear what he's saying. They see him speaking boldly in the temple, unable to be silenced because he is the Messiah. They even speak those words. Maybe, maybe the leaders aren't stopping him because he really is the Christ. And that's true. They can't stop him at this point because he is the Christ. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Sometimes the evidence is right in front of our face. I should have drank more before I come up here. 
The French philosopher Voltaire went so far as to reject atheism completely. He believed in the existence of God. He defended most of the attributes of God, but he rejected Christianity and he rejected the idea that Jesus was God and he rejected the idea of life after death. It's like, man, you got so far. You got so close. He went so far as to predict that Christianity would just be extinct uh, and the Bible would be an ancient relic within 100 years. Ironically, he dies, and a hundred years later, his house becomes the headquarters for the Geneva Bible Society in which Christians are mass-producing Bibles out of his house. And that's just irony. What's sad is he missed it. The Word of God and Christianity, it's not going to be stopped because God's not allowing it, just like Jesus wasn't going to be stopped. And they're seeing all of this before their eyes and and they're missing the truth. They're hearing it. They're even saying it with their own mouths. And they're ignoring the evidence that God is moving and God is at work. So they turn around and say, but we know this can't be the Messiah because we know this guy. I mean, he's, he's from down the street. Like, we know him. He can't be the Messiah. So they just dial it back. They dismiss the idea. Logically, they know, okay, he can't be the Messiah because we know him. And they look at the external factors, but they ignore the facts. And Jesus responds with a very devastating blow to them. He says to them, you know me and you know where I come from. In other words, you're right, you do know me. You know where I come from. But he says, I have not come on my own accord he who sent me is true. And, and listen, this is, this is the blow. And him you do not know. These are very religious people. At a religious festival. Pondering whether or not this is the Messiah. And the fact that they don't see that he is the son of God. Is the fact of unbelief that keeps them from accepting the Son of God. But it also means that they don't know God. I know him because I came from him. I'm sent, he sent me. You don't know him. That's a devastating statement to people who pride themselves on knowing the one true God. And Jesus' point is clear. If they had known God, they would have known his Son. And they wouldn't have rejected that message. Their uncertainty about Jesus was evidence of their unbelief and ultimately their ignorance of God. So they withheld their belief because Jesus didn't fit their ideas, but their ideas were false. And the same happens today. People deny Jesus because he doesn't fit their erroneous ideas and and he doesn't fit the box that they try to put him in. We often deny living as we should, because it doesn't fit the box. This is why we always say Bible study, teaching, prayer, it's important to the Christian faith because we need to know how big the box really is. And we need to see how that applies to us. What's missing in each one of these particular instances of belief? Brothers, religious leaders, and all of the people in Judea rejecting Jesus. What's missing? What's missing is their love for God, their heart for truth. What's missing 
is they don't have faith. They don't believe. They're doing all of this religious stuff for all of the wrong reasons. That's what's missing. The good news is there is hope because later on, Jesus' brothers are going to figure it out and they're going to believe in him. In fact, one of his brothers becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Another one writes the book of Jude. They're going to believe. There's still hope for them. We're told later that, uh, that in, in verse 31 that there are many people that also believed in, in Jesus. And really, that's what is most important. So for the Christian, for the non-Christian alike, the question that we need to be asking, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? If he is, then follow him. Learn from him. Live like him. Accept him. If he's Jesus, then like the disciples, drop your stuff and follow. What keeps us from following the Lord as we ought? It's simply our unbelief. Remember the man who says to Jesus, I believe. Help believe. Help my unbelief. Daily we need to pray. God, help our unbelief. Help us to believe you fully and boldly and surely.